0: Our sermon today will be continuing in the book of 1 Peter. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22 of the third chapter, but we'll read a slightly longer portion, starting at verse 8 of chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 4, 6. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence, to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removing of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in this way, since then Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the, in the same way of thinking forever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of god for the time being for the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do living in sensuality passions drunkenness orgies drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way of people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. It's a uh, exciting change here as he shifts his thoughts to the glories of God and what God has done for us in Christ. And it's an encouragement to us as we look at this and meditate upon it to think about what Christ did and what Christ accomplished. And it's an example also to us in how we should be living our life for christ so it starts off in verse 18 that christ also suffered and died for his people he suffered once for sins now interestingly your translation may be a little different than the one i read because there are a lot of variations here but the variations are all the same some have suffered some had died we understand his suffering to be the cross and his death on the cross interchangeably used words. Some include your, uh, some include our, for sins. Uh, Doesn't really add or take anything away. Uh, The idea, I think, is really linked to the previous verse. Uh, Verse 18 starts off with the word for, but you could also translate it because. Uh, So we need to look at the previous verse, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be the, God's will, then for doing evil. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So there's the complete thought. The idea being, we have this example in Christ, this blessedness that comes through Christ by doing as he did. So really it's a blessed encouragement to us that are suffering for doing good specifically in the previous passage is like that of Christ. And since Christ also suffered, we should be able to suffer with, with, with dignity, with resignation, with confidence and with hope in God, because we're not doing anything unusual. It's what happened to Christ and what Christ is calling us to do, the suffering and the Son of God, he's really, he has shown us the way. Peter did talk about this, by the way, back in chapter 2. And I'll read that passage to remind you of what we saw. It said, what credit is it if you are sin and are beaten for it and endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example Peter's really repeating himself in chapter 3, but we all know that teaching method, right, where you need to repeat something three different ways before people really understand it. Uh, God does that in the Word a lot. So that you might, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust him Self, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in, the bo- in his body on the tree. He suffered for our sins. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So he's repeating a lot of what he's already said, but he's saying it differently this time. He suffered for our sake, the just for the unjust. And shouldn't we who deserve worse suffering than we have, be willing to suffer for him, suffer for doing good, without complaining against him. We don't want to be like Job's wife, curse God and die. We want to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I think that's what Peter is calling us to, and probably what he is mindful of. His topic here, though, shifts from our suffering, to now he's looking at Christ in his glory, his work. He suffered once for sins. Our punishment, our suffering, would never be sufficient for our sins. We cannot pay for it ourselves. Uh, we've read Psalm 49 before, verses 6 through 9. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in their abundance of riches, truly no man can ransom another or give the God the price for his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What the psalmist is telling us is that there's no amount of works, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of anything that you can give for human life. Why? Well, we have sinned against a perfect and infinite God and our sin deserves an infinite punishment. And our payment, our suffering, can never pay for that. And that's why Christ's suffering comes in, why his death on the cross comes in. Man is finite. His his debt is infinite. And that debt is, of course, paid in the infinite, eternal suffering in hell. His divine nature, Christ's divine nature allows him to pay for it, because his soul has an infinite worth, it can pay for our infinite sin, the infinite, or the infinite punishment for our sin. And that's why it's so important that Jesus is remembered as God, not just man, as some people teach. As God, he is, his death is all-sufficient We see this reflected in the Old Testament offerings that were taught. And Hebrews explains this to the Jewish people, and it's useful for us as well. In Hebrews chapter 10, he reminds us, verse 11 through 14, that the priests stand daily in their service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected those for all time who are being sanctified. So we see in that picture of the Old Testament offerings that they had to keep being offered over and over again. Uh, In another passage he brings up the the Day of Atonement, where each year they would lay a hand on the scapegoat and place the sins of Israel, and they would recite the sins, starting at the beginning all the way to the current day. So each year on the Day of Atonement, they would have more and more and more sins as a nation, because they were never really taken away. It was symbolic of the work of Christ. Christ, being God, can take away all of those sins for his people. And that's why we will sing the hymn after the service. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He is able to pay that full price that nothing else could pay. And note he says he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Because he is righteous, because he had no sin, he could die for someone else. Now, Imagine somebody owes you a million dollars. Imagine five people owe you a million dollars. And all of them, their combined net worth is in the tens of thousands. The first one says, oh, I'll take on the debt of the other four. You're going to put the five million dollars on him? You're never going to get paid, right? And that's kind of the way sin is. We can't pay for somebody else's sin and say, oh, I'll take theirs too. Well, you're not going to be able to pay for yours. How can you pay anything for theirs? Uh, Christ has no sin, and so that's the first part of him being able to pay for ours. He has no sin of his own that he has to pay for. He has space to pay for ours, and that space is infinite. Peter reminds us back in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. He was perfectly pure, and that was what the Old Testament teaching was really leading them to. That pure lamb without spot or blemish was able to, was represented by Christ. But they kept getting in trouble because they would take the lame, the weak, the sick, and offer them instead uh, because they didn't need the deformed ones not understanding the meaning and not caring about it. But his perfections allowed him to die for our sin. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and following, we read, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, by his suffering, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So we were unrighteous, weak, dead, and enemies, and yet he suffered for us, he died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that is a matter he relates to us and reminds us of that we might praise God for that reconciliation that we've received. And he says the next words out of his mouth are uh, that he might bring us to God. You know, all of the work of Christ, all of his life on this earth, was really focused on that one thing reconciling his people to God buying for himself the people with his blood now it says that he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit we also need to remember we just talked about how his divine nature allows his sacrifice to be infinite but he also had a human nature the flesh and that was necessary. We read in Galatians 4, 4, 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that he might, they might receive the adoption of sons. The idea being he had to be one of us to be a substitute for us. You can't substitute an apple and an orange. You need a human nature for the human nature. And so he became God and man. And he had to be both. This human nature has to do really with the covenant of works. Right? Born under law, the law of do this and you, you know, sin against me and you will die, that law. He was born under that law, and he lived under it and fulfilled it without breaking it. And that's all necessary for him to be our substitute. In Hebrews 2, we're reminded since the children are flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So again, he has a perfect humanity, one that did not sin, one that was not corrupted by original sin, because he was not born in the usual manner, but one that was truly man, truly human, So that he could truly be a substitute for us. Christ died not just for Peter's generation and those following him, but for the people of all time. The next verses get very confused in many teachings. Very strange things come about. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, you may know the charismatic movement today has adopted this teaching, this prophecy they've received from their God, that says Jesus went to hell and suffered in hell, and that Satan had power over him for those three days. And then he preached the gospel when he was released. Uh, Satan has no power over God or Christ. That's, That's blasphemy to begin with. But also that's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about Jesus going to hell and preaching the gospel to them and saving some people from hell. Once you're judged, you're judged. There's no, once you've died, there's no chance to then put your faith in Christ. It's before that. And just think of the rich man in Lazarus. The rich man had no opportunity. He was very sorrowful, but there was nothing he could do. That's not what he's teaching here. What he is teaching, well, let's continue this. The, the context here, and in, back in Second in Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he speaks more of Noah again. And he says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald, or a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world and on the ungodly. The word here, they've translated herald in the ESV, should be preacher. Because that's the word Paul uses to describe himself. In 1 Timothy 2.7, he says, I was appointed a preacher, same word, and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he's saying, Peter is saying, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So during that time, he was building the ark, and possibly even before that, he was calling people to repent of their sins. He was presumably telling people that the flood was coming, God was going to destroy the world because of their sins, and unless they repented, they would die, and to put their trust in God. This gospel that he preached isn't some New Testament invention. The gospel has always been there, and it starts all the way back at the fall in Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read, and I, God is speaking, I will give, put enmity between you, excuse me, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel uh That's generally understood to be talking about Christ, the cross, his triumph over Satan at that point. Satan strikes his heel with Satan said will be crushed because. Christ has redeemed his people. The gospel was known from the very beginning, the hope. And all of the Old Testament and all of the law of Moses points people to the need for that Messiah, that Savior outside of themselves, for salvation that can only come from God, not from themselves. And so Christ was proclaimed to them by God's Spirit Through the preaching of Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness. For that whole time he was building the ark. In other words, Christ was preached to those who are now in hell, not by going to hell, which the Bible does not teach, but while they were still alive. Not in the person of Christ physically, but the same way they are today taught, preached in the Spirit. Through the instrument of men, through preachers, through preachers like Noah. And so all he is saying in this passage is Christ died not just for us, but for all of the people before who have had faith, all of God's children, is what he's explaining to the people in his letter. He says, in which few, eight, were brought safely through the water. And then, He makes the great statement, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. This is an interesting teaching in a number of ways. Um, First, it's useful for teasing Baptists. Who was immersed? God's people? In the flood? Or the wicked? The wicked were the ones immersed. Uh, In fact, Peter back in 1 Peter 1-2 talks about according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification by the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ (coughs) for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, If Peter has a mode of baptism in mind, it's sprinkling. Sprinkled with the blood, water of baptism is symbolic of that. We do see a significance of baptism in this verse, though. It's not like the washing of body with clean water. Baptism is not a tool that washes you clean. Uh, <coughs> in Cambodia, because many of them had been trained by Baptists, I asked them the question, do you think if we go out and tackle the Buddhist priest who goes by every day while we're worshiping, and drag him into the church and baptize him while we cleanse him of his sins. And they're all like, call. Of course not. Baptism is not an active thing. It's not baptismal regeneration as it's sometimes taught today or the new perspectives on Paul. were all kind of about the same thing. It's not the means by which you're cleansed, and that's what he's teaching here. It's not like washing somebody with water that cleanses them. Rather... It's an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Where does that appeal come from? What is he talking about? Well, in the passage we read, what is he saying? Christ died for us. He suffered for us. He was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God the Father. That is the mode or the meaning of baptism that brought out in this verse. That idea that we are now united with him and appeal to God Not because we've been cleansed by baptism and washed of our sin, but because Christ died for us, and we are united to him in our baptism. Uh, Paul speaks of this a little bit in Romans chapter 6, first five verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue sinning that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that Christ, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, having been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united to him in a resurrection like his. So what is my point? The, The baptism that Peter is talking about is that link between being cleansed by the death of Christ and being confident in the resurrection of Christ. The link is that Noah between Noah and baptism, the ark saved God's people from the flood. Baptism, Christ's suffering, death and resurrection all linked together. Save god 's people from the punishment of hell uh, that 's the parallel he 's drawn, and it saves us not by doing something to us but by appealing to what Christ has done for us. a very big and distinctive difference, uh, one that gives us great hope as well we 're not trusting. In baptism, having cleansed us, in that, oops, I've sinned, so I've dirtied myself again. Can I be acceptable to God? God loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. I need to be baptized again, or I need to do something again to be cleansed. We don't need to deal with that. We have that appeal for a good conscience because of the resurrection of Christ, it mentions in this passage. Now, we spoke of this before. Why is the resurrection important? Well, the wages of sin is death. Christ took our sin upon himself on the cross and died. How do we know our sin is paid? Well, maybe he paid 99%, and I still need to do another 1% in purgatory, the mythical purgatory. Now, how do we know that it is paid 100% in full? Because death no longer had power over him, and he was raised from the dead. Because he had paid for sin. There was no longer any power in death for him. Because he now had power over death, having paid for the sin completely. And only the one who sins dies. And so we have this great hope and this great confidence that he has paid for our sins. Jesus paid it all because of the resurrection. Because there is no longer any need or any ability for him to stay dead. And so we've been linked to Christ through baptism into death, into resurrection, and also then to his victory. And that is the end of this passage, Christ's suffering and victory. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. (coughs) His place was always heaven He's always been there. Remember that passage in Philippians, another one of those great controversies of modern reimagining the Bible. Uh, We're told in Philippians 2.5 and following, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So he was in heaven, He had 10,000 times 10,000 angels to serve him. He had the glory of God. He sat on his throne. He was worshipped. And he set that aside to be born as a man. And he was not born as the king of kings on earth. He was born as a humble carpenter's son in a manger, not even having a hotel to be born in. He set all of that glory aside of heaven and came to earth. I remember being asked once when I first became a Christian, why Christ was born that way and not born as a king. And well, because he's all glorious, he should be born in a more glorious position. And the answer I was given was, obviously, heaven is here, being a king is here, being a pauper is here. Um, The difference between the two compared to where he was is insignificant. And showing his true humility, he was born in the most humble of circumstances. And so he left all of that aside and came to earth. But now, having completed the work he was given, having died for our sins, redeemed us from death, redeemed us from the law, which required death for our sin, having raised from the dead because the sins were paid for in full, he has ascended back to his place in heaven at the Father's side. And now all the angels who are worshiping him have seen what he did. They know the life that he lived, the sacrifice that he made. They understand it better. And his place is even more glorious than before. And the people who were worshiping him day and night around the throne. They have now seen what he, he did. The reality of it has taken place. And he is back up in heaven at his throne. Now, this is important for us, and Hebrews brings out this point rather well. In chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, talking about the former priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 9, 24, he says that Christ has entered not, not into the holy place made by hands, like the old high priest, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. And so now we have the risen Savior ascending to heaven in the presence of God, making intercession for us, his people. Uh, What a great and glorious confidence then we can have. That, That is where that confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, to pray, to confess our sins, knowing that he will forgive us. You know, we may not confess our sins one to another very well because they don't know and we don't want them to know. But God knows. And we can be confident that when we confess, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. You know, repent and confess. And so His being there as our Lord, as our Savior, having lived on earth, having suffered for our sins, having died for our sins, having been resurrected because He paid for our sins, Having ascended back to heaven, he now makes intercession for us. Paul speaks of this a little differently. In Romans 8:31 and following, he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. now verse 18, he suffered once for us. How then will we not also give him graciously all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He has been raised from the dead, and that is proof that our sins are justified, are paid for through his resurrection. And who is to condemn? it is Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. We have this great confidence. We don't need having sinned once in our life to give up hope oh, it's over, I was cleansed by baptism and now I've sinned and dirtied myself and there's no, no more redemption for me. No. Christ died for all our sins from beginning to end, from Adam's sin which is in us to the last sin we commit before we die. He died for them all, he paid for them all. The proof of that is his resurrection. He is now interceding for us. we sin. sinned, Jesus says, that's covered by my blood. We can have that confidence. If we repent, he will forgive us. What a glorious, glorious encouragement for us. Now, he says also that all the angels and all the powers have been subjected to him. Now, that has always been the case, that they've been subjected to God. Remember in Job, Satan wants to hurt Job, but he can't do anything until God gives him permission Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 1, the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands, only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went and killed his family, destroyed his home, took all his livestock, killed all his servants. Uh, He couldn't do anything without God's permission. Then God allowed him to make him sick, but not to take his life. And he was allowed to do that. God has always had full authority over the, over all of his creation, over all of the angels, over Satan himself. Uh, any teaching contrary to that is just foolishness. But not just to them, also the kings of the earth. We read in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That has not always the truth. They are subject to him. However, that subjection to him is going to enter a new and more perfect state in the future, is the promise we've always heard, that he will reign in heaven until his enemies have been made his footstool. Now, not just as he already has authority over them, but that authority will be fully exercised in the future. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks eloquently of this, verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection allows for the resurrection of all of His people. For as by man, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order: Christ, the first fruit; then at the coming at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So all those that are in rebellion against him will be annihilated in the future. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when it says all things in subjection, it is plain that He is not exe- that He is exempted. Who put the things in subjection under Him? In other words, the Father. For when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put things under subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Uh, the thing I really want you to note is that yes. God has put all things under Christ's authority, but that will come in its fullness after his return, when all the enemies and all the opponents are destroyed. And so in this shift of Peter, this taking out of talking about us and our lives and what we need to do, and he talks about Christ briefly, it is a glorious hope for us that the, the day will come When, uh, is that not focused on me anymore? (laughs) The day will come when Christ will rule over all things. Everything will be subjected to him. Where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more sorrow. No more things that tempt us to sin. Only the glory of God forever and ever. And that is our hope. And that is what he is calling us to put our hope in. That we... We have been united with Christ through baptism to his death, to his resurrection, and to eternal life. And we should, therefore, tying it back to his purpose, be willing and able to suffer for doing good, knowing that we are doing what he has done and what he has called us to do, and we will receive that reward, that eternal life. So, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of Christ to us, for eternal life, for the forgiveness of sins, for the hope in the resurrection, for the hope in all the things that you have promised to us in your word. We know, Lord, that all your promises are true, that all of them will happen, and we hope in you, Lord, and pray that you would bless our hearts to turn away from our sins, to turn away from our grumbling, to willingly suffer knowing your Son and redemption in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.